It's been a while since you put me on the shelf. I know you've been distracted by somebody else. It's been a while, but that's all right, you see. And I'll be right here waiting when you want to play again with me. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Cult the Old. I'm Ian McAllister and I'm joined as ever by Nate Owens and Matt Thrower. How are we doing, gents? Doing well, Ian. Running up to Christmas. Yeah, indeed. Not, not too under the weather, I hope. I've been a bit under the weather. I feel like everyone I know across this wide world has gotten sick with something in the last month. Yep, it's it's flu season, and like, I can't I can't think of a single exception. Yeah, it's, it's the same over here. All my group, group of friends had it and just passing it around. That's okay, folks. We won't be passing it on to you, our dear listeners. Each episode of Cult of the Old, I and my fellow hosts are going to dive into the tabletop gaming past. We're going to turn back the release schedule at least 10 years to look at games that were setting tables ablaze in the dim and distant past of a whole decade ago. Over the course of this season, the games we're going to cover will still be available to play, either because they've become evergreen titles, that is, they're always available at retail, or they're accessible through illegal digital means like Board Game Arena. Dungeons & Dragons is the game that anyone thinks of when you talk about role-playing games. Over the last few years, it has broken firmly into the mainstream of popular culture with upcoming films, big-budget computer games, animated series, and multi-million dollar streaming franchises. Back in 2012, we were seeing the final moments of the fourth edition of Dungeons & Dragons, which I personally really liked. It too had many tie-in products, one of which is the game we'll be talking about today. Putting you in the role of one of the mysterious Lords of Waterdeep, This game of the same name saw the mechanism of worker placement get a distinctly Dungeons & Dragons polish as you battled for control of the city. Shall I try and do Lords of War deep in 60 seconds? I guess I could. I challenge you. I I need a timer. So in Lords of Waterdeep, it is a worker placement game. You're playing one of the lords of that city. The lord card you get at the start of the game gives you an extra little way to get points. And effectively what you're doing is you're going around the city gathering rogues, wizards, fighters, and clerics who go out on quests. Uh, those quests are basically points that you get, gather on the board. And also over the course of the game, you'll see more worker placement spaces come about as buildings get added to the city of Waterdeep. Those, those buildings are different every time, so the game has a lot of replayability in it. There's also quite a lot of high-level interaction for a worker placement game. There's um, a deck of cards where you, that you can buy that give you little extra abilities and powers over the course of the game to interfere with everyone else's goings-on. Like You can give them mandatory quests, you might be able to steal some of the resources. It's, it's quite a high level of interaction for a worker placement game. Lords of Waterdeep was released in 2012. Its designers were Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson, and it was, of course, published by Wizards of the Coast. Uh, I would usually go through the artists uh, for a game like Lords of Waterdeep or any of the games we cover, but in this case, there are about 30 of them, and that would take some time. Uh, It gets all a bit Silmarillion. Uh, We'll link to the Board Game Geek page in the show notes, and you can go and have a look at all the artists there, and we do encourage you to do so because there's some really nice art in there. It won the Origins Award Best Board Game in 2013, and also in any of the same year for the Best RPG-Related Product Silver Award. It's still available at retail and has a very decent app version. So, gents, how did you first come across Lords of Wardeep? Well, I um, I played it at a club. I, it can't have been that long after it was released. I don't know uh, how long, but I remember recognising it and thinking, oh, you know, this is, this is a bit hot on the bars. I'd heard about it on the grapevine, and obviously it had that Wizard of the Coast license, the D&D license, which made it leap up everyone's attention cycles. And, I, and I'd kind of, I'd semi-dismissed it, I think, probably because it was a, a worker placement game, not really my favourite genre, but it's a club game, so I figured I'd give it a go. Uh, and actually, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it enough to, to get my own copy, to play with my sort of like, you know, non-club friends. Um, but what really surprised me when I did so is that it, it was actually quite a hit with pretty much everyone. Uh, even my daughter, who was about seven at the time, quite enjoyed playing it, got got into the basis of it and quite enjoyed playing it. And it really became uh, quite a fixture uh, on my friends and family circuit for a while and uh, until we got the Skull, Scoundrels of Skullport expansion for it, which I'm, I'm sure we'll uh, talk about uh, later, which makes the game quite a lot meaner. Uh, and, and that, I think, 
it degraded interest uh, from there on in. But but I had a good time with it, and I still play the uh, the app version, the original board game, the app version occasionally. Yourself, Nate? Yeah, it was it was pretty similar. I remember it was floating around a lot of the game groups I was in at the time. I uh, around this time wizards of the coast was really leveraging the dnd brand in board games before lords of waterdeep there was the dnd adventure series which is still more or less ongoing uh it had a you know it laid fallow for about four or five years and came back uh after fifth edition came out but at the time it was like castle ravenloft uh wrath of a Shardalon. those are th- those are good games there was also uh conquest of narath which is kind of a forgotten one now but is a pretty cool you know dice chucking army moving you know very much in the game master series that tradition of the game master series from the 80s Uh, a lot of really cool plastic minis and wizards had a real knack for bringing very not not especially you know we'll get into this more later not especially innovative board game concepts but extremely dependable ones games that were very stable and very reliable and that certainly was my experience with lords of Waterdeep. at the time i was more into worker placement than i am now uh and i really enjoyed it as well i i had a friend of mine who pointed something out after we'd probably played a half dozen times and he'd played it a couple more and he said you know i don't think i have ever played a bad game of this which is really just kind of spoke to its to its quality uh i ended up getting it i think in the secret santa i did with some local friends of mine i unfortunately i don't own it anymore yeah it was a good one i i got it um and then i don't i unfortunately don't own it anymore it uh got moved on in one of my many uh international moves and it just was below the line one of those times i kind of regret it because i think my family would really dig it now especially just the base game we'll talk about the expansion more but yeah, it's a it, it it was a big hit at the time. We, it was just one of those games everyone could agree on. You know, you go to the game club, everyone's like, "Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good with playing that," and we'd play it. So it ended up seeing a lot of action. Yeah, I mean, I think as we've discussed in previous casts, I mean, I went through a period of wanting games that showed off different types of mechanics in my collection, and I tried a few worker placement games, trying to get my my regular group to sort of play them, and nothing had really stuck. And then Lords of Waterdeep came along, and I was like, well, that's something that's a, a little bit different and insane. It's, it's got a bit more of a theme to it. Try it out. And it has basically been in my collection ever since. I've got the expansion as well. Racy's regular play to my table. Yeah, it's, it's just really, it's really solid and dependable, like Nate says. Yeah, it's, it's just been a... It's the only sort of worker placement game in my collection that I can actually get to the table, pretty much. We'll probably discuss about why, why that is a little bit later on. It was a game that, as I've said, it's a game where it's not, it's not like hugely remarkable, but it takes like a sort of like core sort of solid mechanism and t- brings it to the sort of Dungeons and Dragons world. Do you think there are many sort of influences of note on Lords of Waterdeep or is it just things we've discussed before we were like discussing Agricola, Kalos, that that kind of thing? Certainly Agricola and Kalos are two big touchstones, and I think a big part is the the way that different uh, buildings come out. That, that's been used a lot in a lot of different worker placement games. Sure. But that's a, that's a real kind of hallmark of both of those games, that they do it in different ways. Uh, in Kalos, you actually had to build, like you have to spend your resources to build the building that you want to get into play. And then in... Uh, in Agricola, it's just the card. There's a new card comes out every round. I actually, it's been a little while since I've played this one. I've played it a bunch, but how do they come out in Lords of Waterdeep? Remind me. They're down the side of the board, and then yeah, there's, there's a selection of the side of the board, and then you have to spend spend gold. That's right. Into play. So that's a little closer to Kalis. Then I also think there's maybe a little bit of influence. I'm trying to think what some of the lighter worker placement games were, and a lot of them have kind of been lost to the mists of time. Things like Kingsburg. Uh, Pillars of the Earth. Um, Pillars of the Earth is a pretty good game and probably the first light worker placement. Like the game, the mechanic had been used, you know, it, it was kind of big by that time. And that was one of the first ones that was like, oh, this is a little more, you know, it's the same process, but more of a family kind of thing. Alien Frontiers, I think, was out by this time. And oh, Alien yeah, Frontiers yeah. is. I had Alien Frontiers, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it kind of reminds me of that. That's a more confrontational game than Lords of Waterdeep yeah. is in its basic form. But this is, all these games are kind of f- swimming around in the same waters. Uh, and this one was kind of remarkable for how unremarkable, like it just seems like very much a greatest hits approach 
to worker placement. And I don't mean that as a criticism at all. Sure. Yeah, I, I totally forgot about Alien Frontiers. Yeah, I, I had that for a little bit as well. It didn't again, it didn't quite gel with my group, so it, it just it moved on at some point. And I never really got. I can't think of any sort of really strong influence on, like you say, just just sort of the worker placement genre. And it just sort of took from those from what would come before and made a very sort of solid, dependable game. I mean, it's had plenty of reprints over the years. No new versions that I'm aware of. And last we're just talking about sort of just reprint versions, which I'm sure there's like occasional sort of corrections and that kind of thing. There's, there was one expansion, which I've mentioned uh, in our preamble, Scoundrels of Skullport. That came out about a year later, uh, introduced a sixth player and two modules. Uh, one introduced the corruption mechanic, so you could take corruption tokens to like get sort of big points, but also each corruption token was worth minus points. And the more corruption that was taken around the table, the more each of those tokens are worth are modifying your score down the way. One of the Lords does change that, if I remember rightly. And the other part of that expansion was... I can't remember now. I can't remember the name, but it just had quests that were worth a lot more points. Yeah. Hang on. Live research. <laughs> What's it called? Still it's gone. No. Undermountain. Yeah. So th- yeah, Undermountain was the other one, and you could play with either or. I think you could play for both of those expansions if you wanted. Yeah, to. you could. Yeah, and Undermountain. Uh, Undermountain was just very, very large point quests. That was its thing. It was huge, huge point quests. They were quite difficult to score, but were very, very valuable if you could score them. And I don't think it said anything since. It's just it just hung around and still been available and just been out there. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure, but I could be completely wrong about this. My my memory may be serving me wrong, but I I had a copy, as I said, that I got not long after it came out, and I ended up selling it um, because when I got the Scoundrels of Skullport uh, expansion, and I didn't play it that much with the Scoundrels of Skullport, but I did. I played it a few times with friends, and then I lent it to a friend of mine to take on holiday with his family uh, to the Canary islands uh, and when they came back none of them were speaking to each other and it in fact it turns out skulls of skullport or scoundrels of skullport was entirely responsible for this unfortunate breakdown in communication oh dear. so, so um, uh, rather than getting out in front of my usual group again and all the bad memories associated with it i got rid of it and i reacquired it uh, a few years later as i say because my family liked it, just the base game and the copy i've got the reason i'm mentioning this now is the copy of i think is different shit oh, okay it did have a really peculiar box shape when it was first yeah. published. It was like a, it, like it had two lids. Like the bottom wasn't yeah. really a lid, but it looked like that. Because that, that's, that's the version I've got. Right, okay, no, mine's the same. That's my memory there. My recollection oh, okay. is that it came in an ordinary box. Um, but obviously not. That's just me. My faulty. Yeah. I think, I think I got this one pretty soon after release. So I don't think it's changed format at all. It does have a very good insert, which is nice. Yeah, it does. So it has such a nice there. insert that when I when I had the expansion, I actually kept the expansion box around, <laughs> which is not something I like to do as a rule. I like to cram everything in one box if I can, but I just was so like, oh man, but then it'll just be rattling around in the box. Uh, the the expansion's really interesting. I I liked it, but not yeah, without some caveats. With six people, it can take a while. I really liked the corruption mechanic. I, I felt like it gave just a little more bite to the game uh, in a way that I kind of felt. I, I, I like games that kind of let me take risks. And that's, that is kind of a core part of the original game. But I like having more of that, which there were definitely was in the expansion. Uh, sure. and, and I like it that it was a little bit meaner. That, that worked for me because I was mostly playing it with gamer friends. Like I wasn't playing it with non-gamers at the time. What I did find was it, it kind of served to make the game a lot less close. It really amplified skill differences. And at least this was our experience. Like it felt like yeah. suddenly people were winning by like 70, 80, 90 points. And especially, you know, experienced people who kind of knew stuff better were winning by a whole lot. Or you'd have one person who was just really just take, taking up the, the rear and just nowhere close to everybody else had no shot of winning in the back half of the game. And so, you know, upon reflection, it's probably one of those expansions. It does make it a much more specific experience for good or ill, but it does remove some of that universality that really made the game a big hit at the time. I think those are all fair comments. I, I, one of the things I meant to mention on when I picked up the game, one of the reasons I picked up was that it played five players out of the box. 
which at the time and st- actually still now is kind of unusual without an expansion, especially yeah. with sort of worker placement stuff. Yeah, so yeah, I, I agree. I, I really like I really like the expansion. I think we I think we probably play with the the straight sort of like you just have bigger quests part of that box than we do more than we do with the corruption side of stuff. The corruption side of stuff I kind of like. I almost wanted it to I almost wanted it to be a little bit meaner and you to be able to do more stuff for the corruption. Yeah, I seem to recall that. It always felt like they hadn't quite gone far enough with it for me. Yeah, um, I don't. I I don't, I don't have an answer as to what I want from that. To be honest, right? Like, it hey, it fed into a problem I have with the game as a whole, which is that it's pretty easy to tell because you have these hidden lord cards, right? Yeah. And like a third of the way through the game, it's pretty obvious who a lot of people are, <laughs> and that's like always kind of been an issue with the game. But it was made worse in Scoundrels of Skullport because there's that one guy who like wants piles of corruption or doesn't yeah. or doesn't take damage for corruption. I don't remember the exact wording of the card, but it's like if someone's just taking corruption yeah. with impunity, you're like, oh, I wonder what he has. Yeah. I do think the corruption idea, though, is, is just generally good. I, I like games. Yeah. Uh, I think it's kind of an un- underexplored part of gaming where you have individual decisions that impact on the group you see it a lot in cooperative games of course but it's yeah. a cooperative game uh and and in a competitive game it's really the fun kind of group dynamic yeah. um and the sure. individual lords that protect you or or, or or you know greater or lesser the impact of corruption just enrich that really it's it makes i suppose it makes the game which otherwise we've talked about as being a slightly kind of generic greatest hits worker placement game into something a bit more unusual and make it stand out Mm -hmm. aside from theme yeah i'd agree with that What were your guys' impressions of how uh, sort of impacted the hobby at the time? For myself, it just kind of seemed it just seemed really popular. It was kind of everywhere. I, I found it in like you could see it in like Warstons and places like that. It was the sort of game that was getting into sort of more mainstream places to be sold. It felt like it brought worker placement to a different audience, like a, a sort of wider audience. It was, I mean, it was it was maybe dismissed as a bit light by a lot of sort of like hardcore worker placement Euro folk, which I felt was a bit dismissive because I kind of liked it. And I tried all all their games, and I didn't like them very much. Um, but yeah, no, it it, seemed, it just seemed really popular, and it's a, it it's a shame it's kind of sort of like lost a little bit of impact over the years, which I guess is why we're talking about it on this cast. Yeah, I don't have a, a lot to add to that. It, it it stood out to me as being a worker placement game for people who didn't like worker placement games, such as me. And there were lots of reasons for that. Uh, it was it it's the D and D license is a huge part of that. And it, I really liked the way, and I think a lot of people liked the way that it represented workers as adventurers, because it made yeah. those workers into somebody. When we talked about Agricola, we talked about how uh, unusual it was in the sense that it made worker placement into something thematic. Well, this does it even more so, uh, and and the D and D theme just just makes it that much more appealing. You feel like a lord pulling strings from the outside somewhere. You know, making things happen in the city of Waterdeep and, and hiring adventurers to do your skullduggery. It kind of brought the the meta setting of D&D, I suppose, if you like, to life in a way that other board games don't. And then that higher level of interaction, uh, which is something that a lot of people, you know, well, me, who doesn't like the genre, found problematic about worker placement generally and just gave it that kick of excitement the random buildings the cards these occasional mandatory um quests and the the buildings the way that you started out out without any of those things because like agricola you get seven seven cards up front and you've got all your your um stuff laid out some of it's face down to start with but there's a huge array of options right at the start of the game whereas in lords of waterdeep they're actually quite narrow Uh, and there's yeah. only a few places around the bay that you can put put your workers into. And then the way that cards and more buildings gradually come into the game enrich it. They enrich the depth of it without making it feel like it's got a difficult learning curve. So it kind of feels more accessible. It feels lighter, I think, than actually. It's not a heavy game, of course, by any stretch of the imagination, but it, but it's. Uh, I think it is heavier richer than it first appears when you've played the opening couple of rounds yeah i I think that's fair i mean i I love how those buildings you don't even necessarily want to use them yourself the buildings you put out 
you're you're like sort of keeping an eye on what other people are doing and hoping they'll use them for you because one of the things i didn't mention in my minute rundown is that when someone uses a building that you own you get a little bonus which is really nice you get maybe a resource or some money or something comes your way a, a, cl- a cleric gets thrown out of your your building towards you and i don't know how many different people released sets of meeples that looked like <laughs> clerics and dungeons and fighters and rogues etc you know, there was, there was it's, a lot it's of funny you yeah it's funny you mentioned that because when i got it in the the secret santa the guy gave it to me with a set of these little custom meeples a good friend of mine and uh wow, still is really and santa. yeah it is but here's the thing i ended up using the cubes more um i don't you know which sounds so weird i'm not that kind of guy at all i always i usually prefer to have a wooden piece look like what it's meant to represent but i think it was just a matter of um just kind of preferring the ergonomics of it. sometimes you just want to move cubes around a board i guess i i I I don't think we can meeples do take up a lot of space i've seen yeah yeah that's true that's true that might have been it it's been like 10 years since i made that decision so one thing i i think we got to we can't really separate this from the context of where the D&D brand was at this point because of fourth edition. And, you know, and I, I've never actually played fourth edition, but I've played a lot of fifth edition and I've played a lot of the BX edition in the form of old school essentials. And uh, the fourth edition, for those of you who don't know, was was a really kind of a very divisive edition in a lot of ways. And Ian, you can really give us more background on the kind of the reasons why, but all of the consequence of this was that the game had really kind of, for, for a lot of reasons had kind of bombed out by this time. And it was probably the low point of D and D I think in the last 30 or 40 years, I'm willing to say. And as a result, wizards had actually announced in 2012 that they were going to cease publication on fourth edition and then we're talking about doing a new edition to come out that would eventually be fifth edition and come out in 2014. And so Lords of Waterdeep is really, uh, is, is pretty significant because it's one of the things that was keeping the brand alive at the time. And that's kind of hard to remember now because we don't think about it, but not only was it keeping the brand alive, it was really opening it into new audiences because all the D and D games that had come out in this crop, I talked about them, you know, the adventure series, conquest of Nerath, those were very traditional. If you're a D&D player, you probably also like this kind of game. It's a dungeon crawl. It's a big conquest on a map thing. But this is a kind of game for a totally different sort of person, a Euro gamer. Um, and it has yeah, the really thematic. Weird, yeah. yeah, yeah. It has the thematic stuff in it. Like Matt talked about, yeah. this is the first time I'd really become very familiar with the Forgotten Realms as a, as a setting, which is where this is set for those of you who you know, know your D&D settings. I'd never heard of the city of Waterdeep before, before I played this. I never, I, I never knew what the Xanathar was. Uh, and these are all things that like, this was my introduction to Dungeons and Dragons in a mythological sense, not in like the sense of, oh, I know what like an owl bear is. And I know like some of the, the tropes, but this is like the first time I really learned about the setting. And I, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone of, of, of a lot of major board gamers at the time. I think this was my really kind of primed me for being ready to actually try the game itself when it kind of got resurrected two or three years later. Yeah, I think that's kind of the same for me because I my first foray into role playing was actually with like Dungeoneer, like the sort of advanced fighting fantasy, Steve Jackson and Limits and stuff. Uh, and I never really played. I never really played with Dungeon Dragon. I mean, I'm a, I'm a GM pretty much. <laughs> yeah I mean, over here right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should do yeah. a, a a spin-off podcast about why we can only ever gm and not ever <laughs> just crying <laughs> into players yeah. great as friends that's why <laughs> yes that's <laughs> yeah, what so, it is I, yeah so yeah I, I, like you chaps i'm an, an eternal gm as well pretty much uh so yeah the steve jackson and livingston advanced fighting fantasy were my introduction to to role-playing and i didn't really come to D until fourth edition uh, so the reason, so much, much cleverer people than me can tell you about the history of Dungeons and Dragons and there's ups and downs and all sorts of things. And there's some very good books and documentaries out there about precisely this thing. But the reason that uh, Nate was talking about like fourth edition was controversial is that it effectively focused the game much more on killing things and taking their stuff. It, it had a sort of MMO style sort of sensibility in the way it talked about mechanics and characters and that kind of thing. It focused on the combat aspects of Dungeons & Dragons, though I have plenty of friends who ran very successful narrative campaigns 
and use the combat mechanics as well. And a lot of people really didn't like that the way it focused on sort of more set piece combat like you might find in a massive multiplayer online game where you'd get like little encounters and then go up against a big boss. One of the good things 4th edition did was it gave everyone very interesting jobs to do. So even like healers in parties or who traditionally would just like stand around and then just heal every now and again could do other stuff. So it gave everyone lots of things to do uh, in combat, which was really cool and really interesting. And combats became a lot more interesting and tactical. And you had all sorts of various powers and that kind of thing, like you might have on an action bar in a massive multiplayer online game. Obviously, the community thought otherwise. And that's why Wizards ended it, as, as Nate's alluded to, around about this time and sort of said, look, we're going to stop publishing fourth edition. We're working on a new edition, which eventually became the fifth edition that we all now know and is going to be like the edition forevermore. If Wizards have no, their way, kind of, pretty much. They're, saying that. Kind of, they're saying that, but what we're working on now, that's going to be sixth edition. They're yeah. <laughs> like, they're just going to, that's, that's yeah. just how it is. One of the things also that is that Wizards of the Coast really struggled to market the game. Not just not just from the the controversy and everything like that, because you know it was coming on the heels of a very well loved edition three point five, and that had only been out like four or five years at that point. Yeah. Like it was, you know, and so a lot, and that's why that became Pathfinder. Boy, there's this whole alternate thing we could talk about, but yeah. Wizards really the had trouble. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no kidding. Wizards really had trouble marketing fourth edition. Uh, the yeah. books came out very quickly. They needed to be. Uh, there was a lot of. Uh, errata that was built into them balance was kind of wonky until like there were several dungeon masters guides several monster manuals several player handbooks it became a very very fat product line in a way that fifth edition has really consciously tried not to be and then it kind of got a little confused because they sort of shook the etch-a-sketch and then started what they called D&D Essentials, which was like a revised fourth edition that was meant to be a lot more approachable. And it was evidently really good, but totally bombed out. And that was kind of the last gasp of fourth edition, which happened right around this time. So it was it was a very weird time <laughs> for the brand. And here's this board game that is really kind of holding the standard for a completely new group of people. So I think, I think that's really significant. The other thing I wanted to say, we've used the term greatest hits, Matt, you use that a couple times, you know, that's, that's such an anachronism. It's like the little diskette icon that says, this is how you save because greatest hits albums are so rare anymore, but we, it's easy to forget. Hey, when I was a teenager, a greatest hits album was awesome because that's the first time I could be exposed to an artist you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, 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 a, you don't want to ask a fan how to get into an art, you know, because they'll, they'll tell you like, oh, you need to listen to like these, this, this, and this album, but don't worry. It gets really, you know, they'll tell you all this stuff. That's just like, you know, I'm not really a fan yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It gets really good after season four. Right. And you know, and you don't want to have to do that kind of stuff when you're just kind of getting your toes wet. And there's still some greatest hits albums that are really important to me personally even for artists that i i otherwise listen to a bunch it's just nice having one little collection with a lot of hits (laughs) you know and so there's real value in games like this whatever hardcore gamers think because you know they're not they're not the ones who are growing the hobby the ones growing the hobby are making new gamers and that's what games like this do I think it's worth, um, before we end this little side trip into D&D 4th Edition, I think it's worth mentioning them because we've, we've talked about them earlier in the podcast that games like uh, Castle Ravenoft and Rash of Avar, Wrath of Ashardalum, um, were essentially 4th Edition in a box. Uh, they were like very, very stripped down versions of the rules, but the yeah. core mechanics were the same. And I think the That's fact true. that you could do that indicates what kind of a game fourth edition was. I should mention, I, I, I've, I'm a long, long-term D&D player. It was my introduction to the hobby. I played uh, BX when they were BX boxes. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and went through AD&D first and second edition. I bombed out at third. I didn't do it in third because I couldn't be bothered to relearn the game. It seemed so different after the, the relatively minor change between first and second edition AD and D. I kind of just gave up. Uh, and I sat out third edition and uh, only looked at fourth because of the Castle Ravenloft games, you know, and, and those games. It's the only reason I, I took any interest in fourth at all. Um, and I suspect that the fact that those games did exist and were popular 
Because you could kind of do what D&D 4th Edition wanted to do in a box. Which is, which yep. is, you yeah. know, it, it, it kind of, in some ways, those games were so good, it made the, the, the actual role-playing game superfluous. And because it wanted to be a combat game, as you've described, the narrative aspects of it were kind of sidelined. So, hey, why not just, just go the whole hog and play a board game? You know, why, why not do that? Um, so I enjoyed those. And I think it, it kind of built the audience potentially for a game like, um, Warlords of Waterdeep. While I accept absolutely make a great point, it's a very different game. It brought some very different gamers into the orbit of D&D, um, but the enthusiasm that was there for it is partly because people were primed to enjoy D&D board games round about D&D 4th edition time. Great point. So what did we th- what did we think of it from a sort of critical point of view, guys? What, what, what are your sort of critical impressions of the game? The thing that really that really stands out for me about it is that it, it has something that very few of the worker placement games do, and that's well, at least until recently, uh, did, and that's drama. There's, there's real excitement in in Lords of Waterdeep because you don't know whether or not you're going to get uh, you know hit with. Ma- Mandatory quests. You don't know what the the intrigue deck is going to throw up at you. Although they become familiar with time, there's a big reveal, or a bit of a reveal at the end when you you slap your lords over and tot up your points. And perhaps most importantly, until the the mid to late game where you've got a lot of buildings coming out, there's a real sense of competition for the board spots. Some of them are definitely better than others. Uh, early at the early in the game, and and there's a real like that sense of oh god damn it and um, somebody's got something I need is, is really sharp in Lords of Waterdeep. While in, like in most worker placement games, you can take a second option, it feels there's a big gulp, gulp, gulf in Lord of Waterdeep between what you wanted to do and what you've ended up having to do until more of those, those, those new buildings flood the board. But even then, the fact that those buildings, uh, as Izzy and pointed out, have a reward for you if somebody else uses them, uh, adds to the drama. I, a, a number of times I can remember playing Lords of Waterdeep, having had a building on the board and really hoping somebody else was going to use it before I did, even though it was useful, because I, I wanted that reward. Not, not because um, it was free, but just because it gave me something I couldn't easily otherwise get that I needed for my plans. And that constant sense of, of waiting for something exciting to happen, of waiting to see how things are going to change between between your turns um, really gives it a, a sense of engagement that a lot of its peers lacked and, and still lack. I think it's, it's only very recently with games like um, Dune Imperium that the worker placement has, has brought that sense of excitement and drama back into gaming. Yeah. I haven't played Dune Imperium yet. It's on my sort of want to playlist because it looks very good. I, I really like deck building and it, it seems like it's an interesting theme i, re, I really want to get into that yeah I, th- I think one one of the things that the the buildings does does do for me is like every board's a little different in lords of Waterdeep because you've got the you've got the core spaces and like you so like wizards are quite hard to get and clerics are quite hard to get but that might change depending on which buildings come out or maybe like fighting quests will be easy to do because there's like five different spaces that all give you fires now because that's all all anyone's building and th- those choices are they're a group choice which is kind of interesting and i really, really like the light work placement game that's in there and i find that the buildings are kind of an emergent part of it like they're an emergent strategy as to who who gets what who owns what do i want to go and use that space because i'm giving dave over there some bits and pieces but maybe he oh. needs to get those for for a quest, and I don't want Not to give them Dave. to him. Not Dave, yeah. you're yeah. Table as yeah, well. Screw that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Uh, I do have a Dave on my table, so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like you say, Matt, the cards are really interesting. Like, your, your buildings can blow up. There's all sorts of drama comes from an intrigue deck. Things can blow up, and workers can be assassinated and moved around, and all sorts of weird stuff can happen out of that deck. And there's always an interesting opportunity of like, well, I can't do anything else this turn, so I might as well go and get an intrigue card because that might let me do something, right? Or it might let me do something to you at least, <laughs> and that'll be fun. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting it's a really interesting little game, and like I said, like calling it a great hits is is 
I think pretty accurate because it just it's a really good example of like what worker placement can bring to a game where someone's thought a little bit more about the integration and like where conflict's going to come from and as you say Matt where the drama is going to come from because from some worker placement games I've played there's very little drama yeah Sorry, uh, you know fans, it's true <laughs> this are are as gamers you accumulate a lot of aspirational games you know which yeah. are games that are just like this week I've been fooling around uh playing with my now almost 10 year old copy of duel of ages 2 which is like one of my dearest loves for as board games go but it's an it's an absurd game to try to get played but i love it so much and i keep dragging it all over the world with me and it's really tempting as a gamer to focus on games like that that you really love but maybe are so uniquely suited to you you'll never get them played what you need is a, a a collection if you're if you're curating a collection you need maybe a couple of those aspirational games, but you really need a lot of games like Lords of Waterdeep, which are what I call workhorse games. The kind of games like they will get played. They're the, you know, they're, they're always going to be popular with a wide variety of people. Everyone's pretty, pretty good with it. You know, maybe a, a few people may really love it, but a lot of people are just like, no, I, I like it. It's good. And that's like we we need to build our games our, our game collections around games like that you know whatever works for your group because otherwise you're just going to have a big pile of cardboard that you can never get played one of the things about that that uh greatest hits quality is it just it has a lot of hints of stuff that has worked really well on other worker placement games uh you know it has the the way you do the buildings that's very much from Kalis, where you get a little bonus where you get them someone uses your building cool i get a little bonus from it but it doesn't double down too hard on that. There's some flexibility in it. You know, you, you want people to use your buildings, but can you rely on everyone using your building? People may not use it now just to spite you. Uh, it has a lot of interaction, but it, it's like the right amount. It's not this really, you know, it's not like Citadels <laughs> where it's this really knockdown, drag out sort of game. It's just, the, it's the amount that people expect to have in a game. If you're, if you're just kind of getting into the hobby and it just so it doesn't double down on any one thing it has the hidden role part but that's not the whole of the game you know it has the way the intrigue cards work and i i think all of that stuff it's it's the thing about wizards of the coast is those game designers they're pros they're really really good at it and i you know all those games i talked about the dnd adventure games conquest of narath and even going back to older games stuff like nexus ops which is kind of a different regime made that game in 2005 but, you know, games like that, they're they're just really good at seeing what works and making the game revolve around that. And that's a real gift. And they have to because they're they have to make the investment worthwhile for a company as big as they are. And so I, you know, Lords of Waterdeep, I said I don't own my my copy anymore. But that's mostly because the kind of things I wanted from it, which is a little more interaction, I like the nastiness of Skulls, uh, Scoundrels of Skullport. I ended up finding that in stuff like uh, uh, Argent the Consortium, which is a game I also really, really love and don't play as much as I'd like. That's a, a very interactive worker placement game. Things like that. And then things like Agricola that I'd always kind of been an evergreen for me. But I will say this is that of the light worker placement games, I think Lords of Waterdeep is the only one that I genuinely really like. I think it 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 knows that it knows exactly how much game it needs to have, which yeah. is different from something like there was a game I played, uh, I reviewed once called To Serve Mankind. And it was just a joke thing, like a cooking contest between aliens. And we're trying to and it was so stripped down. And it was when I we talked about Agricola and I said worker placement is basically just taking turns. <laughs> Like, that's what that game felt like. It just, there's just not enough game here. But Lords of Waterdeep has exactly the right amount of game. And if you're kind of want to know just like, what's the baseline for this genre? That's a, that's a really good starting point. I really like your point about workhorse games being like the core of a sort of curated collection. Because that's now how I like consider my collection. I curate it for the groups I play with. And yeah, you need, you need games like that. Games that will just get to the table. And yeah, be played and be enjoyed, and are maybe a good example of a thing. Maybe like as a sort of a sort of side part of that, there may be a good example of a particular thing. But yeah, you just those those games that will just come out over and over again. Like that, it, it didn't make it into this season. But Lords of Vegas, for instance, is one of those for me. That that game just gets to my table 
on a regular basis because we all know how to play it and we like it and it just does its thing. It's Weirdly, just- that's how raw has been for me. I got a copy yeah, I mean, in 2006. Sure ones. Yeah. yeah, I play that game so much. Yeah. I'm afraid I, I'm, I'm a terrible... I, I don't have this experience. Not that I'm denying that it's, it's a big deal, but because I am the person in my group that reviews games, I, I am like a slave driver when it comes to new titles. <laughs> we are going to play this new thing that dropped on my letterbox this week. Uh, so we, we <laughs> You've had your longevity in this, in this field, Matt. Possibly, possibly. The only thing we've got uh, that's anything like that is Risk Legacy, which, which comes out pretty much yearly as, as an anniversary thing. Just we're, we're going to do another game to, c- to continue our long-running Risk Legacy campaign. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I my group is long-suffering from having played multiple review copies, so I've, I've taken the, the pressure off them a little bit and basically went and joined other gaming groups in order to inflict it on, on them instead. <laughs> ha! That's how I got around. Whatever that. it takes. Yeah, having all been people who review games, we all know the we all know the pain of having to review something mediocre. Hey guys, yeah. we can't play the fun game this week. We got to play oh. something kind of bad. Sorry. <laughs> okay, occasionally, like start like with a meet up with some of the other giant brain team in Glasgow from time to time. It's like, so we're going to play this. I think I don't like it, but I'm not entirely sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good pitch. It's like, great, thanks guys. <laughs> Let's move on to sort of the current era. Like, do we think like Wars War Deep is obviously still around? Is does it really have much influence anymore on the current era? Obviously, there's been a lot of games since Lords of War Deep came out, but it's still on shelves. Does it still have any influence on the current gaming oeuvre? The key thing that Lords of Waterdeep brought to the table, it kind of follows on from what we said before about how board games kept the D and D license alive in the era of fourth edition, um, because there was this pivot into a genre of gaming that D&D is not associated with. It sort of paved the way for more D&D board games. And there was uh, D&D board games that are not in that traditional dungeon-delving conquest type of paradigm. So first of all, I don't, well, actually, I don't know which order they came out in, but there was Assault of the Giants, which is which is a, a lesser known sort of like uh, strategy game in that, in that oeuvre, but perhaps more importantly, Tyrants of the Underdark which is an excellent uh, deck building and, and board conquest game. And I, I really don't think... I mean, I love Tyrants of the Underdark. I think it's probably better than uh, Lords of Waterdeep, although I haven't played it as much, but it's, it's really a very good game. And I don't think we would have seen games like that were it not for the success of Lords of Waterdeep. It kind of... Its success meant that Wizards of the Coast were happy to take gambles, pitches in this new and unknown direction. And there haven't been that many, and, and some of them, like Assault of the Giants, haven't been that successful. But um, I'm pleased they've tried. Uh, it kind of led to that cross-pollination. I think, you know, you, you could argue even, this is a real stretch, but there are aspects of the design of 5th edition, things like bounded accuracy and things like that, which which kind of have a bit of board game-ness feel about them. They're kind of the way that you would... People didn't really talk about balance in Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, what would the idea of a balanced game, a role-playing game? Uh, the idea was that the players and the DM, you know, balanced it themselves kind of thing. Now we talk about balance in a, in a, in in fifth edition a lot boy we sure do talk about balance don't we <laughs> <laughs> yes and um, but i'm not sure we would have we would have, got, <laughs> uh, we would have got any of that without uh, without lords of Waterdeep. so so while it's not been i suppose it's been narrowly very influential but not widely influential tyrants of the underdark still widely available as well out of interest still around you know i i, I think sometimes it you know we talk about influence and influence can mean a lot of things it can mean oh it was really you know it really impacted the future of gaming in terms of how games are designed but sometimes influence is just that a game was really played a lot you know it's like fleetwood max rumors which is an amazing album but was not truly considered really amazing until like 15 or 20 years later it was just considered extremely popular but now people kind of look at it and be like, wow, I know like every song in this album and I've never owned it. I've never really listened to it front to back. You know, it's one of those kind of things. It's that kind of game where its impact is that it is still played quite a bit. Now, it's helped that it's got one of the biggest board gaming companies printing it 
because that keeps it in print. They can they they, they can ride out stuff that other game publishers can't. Uh, they're never going to lose the license to their own game. You know, uh, they can afford to dump money into a really nice app to keep the game visible. And lest we forget, the game itself is designed to be played. Like it's it's not one of these boutique artistic things that's kind of meant as a statement. I mean, maybe it is. I shouldn't I shouldn't presume and say that it's not that. But more than that, it's designed to be to make it to the table. Like the design. This is just me kind of. What, what I guess the design process was is that it looks like choices were made. This will be the more accessible choice. And so we'll put it in here to make the game more approachable and more people will be able to play it. So I, I, I think that's really what has been its influence is it's just, and I, I kind of wish more games were made with that. I mean, a whole lot of games are made with that mindset, but they're rarely as seasoned game designers as they have at Wizards of the Coast. So I, I think that's kind of how, how, how it's impacted us. It's just the fact that it's still present 10 years later and it, has, it, it really established the baseline for worker placement, which is not even something like there's a lot of games that were really more influential on the genre, but now have been forgotten. Kalos and Agricola are really impactful games that now are, are, are pretty niche titles. So that's not Lords of Waterdeep. It's the, it's the, it's the baseline. Interesting. Yeah, I guess um, I guess it really is. Yeah, and thought of it like that before. That's a really good point about it being wanted to be played. Like that that one of the things that insert does. I mean, admittedly, I now have like a a folded space insert for both expansions in one box, but that that insert does like it separates everything out. It makes sort of set up and tear down a little bit easier. It just makes that game easier to get to the table over and over again, which is. Yeah, that's what you want. And it plays quickly. Like it doesn't take like hours and hours to play. What it's a couple hours max, yeah. really. Let's not forget Hasbro's a toy company, Hasbro owning Wizards of the Coast. And they did make a really good toy, which is what we all own, right? This giant shelf I have in my living room. Those are toys. They're extremely expensive toys. These are serious games, Nate. How dare you that's call why, them toys? That's why we make the big bucks, because we're serious critics of art. Yeah. He says he's putting on his glasses. <laughs> why not both, as people say? No, it could be, it could be two things. Absolutely. It could be two things. The art of, you know, kit chart, for God's sakes. Why not? Why that's why right. So, gents, what would you say to the sort of modern gamer who's looking for a light worker placement game? Is, is Lords of War deep it? Should they get something else? What, what space does Lords of War deep have in their collection? If you're, if you're looking for a light worker placement game, this is stop one. I mean, there's no, there's really, you know, there's, there's other games to be played in that weight class and that genre. But this is like, if you, if you've always been curious, what's this mechanic about? Like, I don't know if people ask themselves that question. I do. But if you're that kind of person and you've never really played a worker placement game, Hey, this is a terrific starting place. If you are really experienced in the genre and you've kind of just given this one a pass for whatever reason, do check it out. But just kind of know what you're getting into. It's worker placement for the masses in the best way possible. But, you know, you should kind of know that. That's kind of what I say. It's, I, I kind of moved on from it. But now I'm having this conversation. And for the first time in like five years, I'm thinking, you know, I should really get another copy of it. <laughs> so if that's what, you know, that's the kind of effect we're having here. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's great if you've never been introduced to the genre before. I wonder if it's seen a sort of surge in sales from like the popularity of 5th edition. I'm assuming it is because it's got Dungeons and Dragons on the cover. So somebody will buy that because it's got Dungeons and Dragons on the cover and 5th edition is hugely popular. Introduce people to more board games, which is always good. I mean, I think I think it's a great little game. It gets to my table a lot. It's the only worker placement game in my collection and there is a reason for that, which is that it's just, it's just worker placement-y enough. It's not too worker placement-y. So it's not it's not too dry. It's not got like a bored man looking out into the Mediterranean on the front cover. It's got a bit of theme to it, it's got a bit of interaction to it. Yeah, it's no it's foul tempered really princes on the cover. No foul tempered princes. Uh, there's no trading in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it's just it's just solid. Really, yeah. It's work it, it's a workhorse, but th- that is not a insult. It's just does its thing real good. But I do think there are games that have perhaps beaten it at its own game now. I don't know. It, it's still a very okay. enjoyable game, but that you know, in terms of light worker placement games, you could you could possibly talk about Everdell. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I've got Everdell as well. Actually, um, 
just work play or exciting work placement games. We've already dropped some names. You know, we've we've kind of already talked about June Imperium uh, and 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 other games uh, and Anachrony. There's another one, but the thing, as I said, I think when it came about Twilight Struggle and about a couple of other games that have come up, it's got this brilliant app version. So if you've got any curiosity at all. Why not take a punt? You'll have a good time. You know, you might be surprised. Yeah. It will do you no harm at all. So, so if you want to play it, yeah, it's cheap. It's an easy way to find other players. And if you enjoy it, well, hell, as, as we keep saying, it's uh, still widely available on shelves. It's a good time. Even with all these other options out now, one of the things that Wizards of the Coast also, they can produce at a scale where the, the cost can be pretty low. Um, yeah. Games like Anachrony and Everdell, are, they, they do cost more. You know, they they cost they can cost quite a bit more compared with Lords of Waterdeep, and yeah. uh, so that is that is a huge appeal of a game like this, and and we need more games like that in the hobby. Games that are yeah. meant as an at an entry point price that aren't just like a small box card game. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, a quick Google says around about the sort of thirty to forty pound mark thereabouts. You can get a copy of Lords. I think of Waterdeep it was like forty five in the U.S. at full retail. Yeah. That was ten years ago though, so I haven't priced I, it in I a while. I I have lied over the course of this uh, episode. I have Everdell in my collection as well, which is, of course, a work of placement game as well. So we lose sorry, our credibility, worst, Ian. God damn it. I'm the worst critic. <laughs> We're all the Ian. worst critics, man. I forget what's, what's even about all these old games. <laughs> yeah. When I were a lad. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time on Cult of the Old. Bye for now. Oh. Thanks, everyone. Thanks very much for listening. Editing for the cast was done by me, Ian McAllister. The music for the cast was provided by my brother-in-law, David Oliver, with my friend, Alistair McLeod. Our logo was created by Rachel Wines Thrower. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out is by telling your friends about us and leave us a review and rating on your podcast host of choice. You'll also find the cast on thecultoftheold.com, where you can find writing about older games. You can follow the hosts on Twitter. I'm at the Giant Brain. Matt is at Mattthra, that's M-A-T-T-T-H-R. Nate is at Sanildefanso, that's S-A-N-I-L-D-E-F-A-N-S-O. You can come and chat to the team and fellow game enthusiasts on our Discord, and there will be an invite to that in the show notes. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so through our Ko-Fi, and I'll put a link to that as well. You can send the cast an email about any of the games we've covered, should cover, or anything else really, at cultoftheolduk at gmail.com. Bye for now.